Beginning in the 16th chapter of the first book of Kings, we're told the story of Ahab, the king of Israel, his wife Jezebel, and a prophet named Elijah. Elijah is critical of Ahab and Jezebel and quickly finds himself at odds with their empire. To be clear, Elijah was not alone in his criticism. 1 Kings 16.33 states, that Ahab did more to arouse the anger of God than all the other kings of Israel. Ahab's wife Jezebel was also up to no good. The story tells us that she's seeking out and murdering faithful prophets so she can replace them with the prophets of the gods Baal and Asherah. Elijah confronts Ahab and challenges Jezebel's pagan prophets to a showdown on Mount Carmel to determine whose God is better. 450 priests of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah show up. Elijah mocks them, ridicules their gods, calls down the fire of his God, and when the contest is over, has all 850 of them killed. It's at this point that we enter today's portion of the story of God as it is written in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel about everything that had taken place. He told her how Elijah had executed all the prophets of Baal with a sword, and she became furious. Jezebel sent an urgent message to Elijah. May the gods kill me, and worse, if I haven't killed you the way you killed their priest by this time tomorrow. Your end is near, Elijah. Terrified, Elijah quickly ran for his life. He traveled the length of Israel and finally arrived at Beersheba in Judah. He left his young servant there and then went into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom tree and collapsed in its shade, wanting to be done with it all just to die. Elijah cried, enough of this God, take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep. While he was sleeping, a heavenly messenger came and instructed Elijah to get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. The heavenly messenger visited Elijah again, shaking him awake and saying, Get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate, and drank his fill and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And when he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word word of God spoke to him, saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for God, working my heart out. But the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your altars, and murdered your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they're trying to kill me. The eternal one responded, Leave this cave and go stand on the mountainside in my presence. Then a mighty wind separated the mountains and crushed and crumbled every stone. But this was not a divine wind because God was not within the wind. After the wind, an earthquake shook the whole earth. But this was not a divine quake because God was not within the earthquake. After the earthquake was over, there was a fire. But this was not a divine fire because God was not within the fire. After the fire, the sound of sheer silence. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then the word of God spoke to him, saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah answered, I have been very zealous for God, working my heart out. But the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your altars, and murdered your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they're trying to kill me. The eternal one responded, go back through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. And you're not alone. There are 7,000 Israelites who have not bowed down to Baal or kissed his image. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I once listened to a rabbi describe the orthodox tradition of Judaism by comparing it to a master-level chess match that had been played hundreds of years ago. Every move had been meticulously recorded and analyzed. The final resting place of all the pieces on the board had been preserved and placed under a large glass case, allowing each move to be referenced and remembered and every game to be canonized and studied. The large glass case was then placed in a beautiful and extremely safe museum. In the protection of that museum, the pieces would not be touched and the game would never change. Now, to be fair, I would submit to you that this rabbi's description of a faith that is painstakingly protected and preserved is not an exclusively Jewish phenomenon. Attempting to secure and safeguard the beliefs and practices of faith is something humans have been doing across all cultures and all religions for as long as we have been able to consider the possibility of a higher power. We all do it, and we always have. We prefer our faith finalized, formatted, and framed in a museum where it can be reviewed and revered. Friends, I do this. I don't really care for permeable borders. I much prefer things to be defined and contained. I want to figure out the correct form, the best way, the right way to do something or understand something, and then I want to master it, codify it, write it down in the discipline, get it under glass in a museum where it can be honored as the standard. Unlike me, however, the story of Elijah seems less interested in preserving and honoring the standard and more interested in disruption and change. In ancient wisdom literature, mountains were symbols for change. They represented the climb, an arduous journey that resulted in revelation, new information, or a different perspective. Mountains transform altitude and attitude. Mountains, unlike museums, aren't necessarily safe. In the story we hear in 1 Kings, it's at least possible to see Elijah as more interested in the safety of the museum than the disruption of the mountain. Elijah knows what's righteous. When he arrives on Mount Carmel, he's got it all figured out. His faith is finalized, formatted, and framed, and he's ready to call out anyone who doesn't measure up. 
Sometimes when we think we've got it all figured out, we close ourselves off to new information. We function with what author Lawrence Wright calls crushing certainty. In our certainty, everything else tends to get crushed. For example, how certain does one have to be to call out 850 people in a religious showdown and then kill them all? And I realize this may sting a bit, but if we're honest about Elijah's story, if we let it out from under its glass case, then we have to recognize that if this were to happen today, we would call Elijah a religious extremist, and we would call what he did terrorism. How do we imagine the families and loved ones of the 850 murdered prophets felt about Elijah and his religion? Do we think they felt strangely warmed and called into a relationship with Elijah's God? Once more, who told Elijah to do this? Who told him to murder all those prophets? According to this story, no one. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 says, In the third year of the drought, the word of God came to Elijah, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the earth. That's it. Those are Elijah's instructions. Present yourself to the king. God is going to bring rain and end the drought. There's no mention of a religious showdown. There's nothing about the prophets of Baal and Asherah. God never tells Elijah to kill anyone. So how do we get there? How do we arrive at a place where instead of delivering a message of much needed water, Elijah kills 850 people and ends up on the run for his life? I would submit to you the possibility that crushing certainty has something to do with it. That when we hold our faith as something that can be static and stored in a museum, it will inevitably be reduced to a tool for judgment Something by which we compare everything and everyone else. When we place our faith under glass, it ceases to be a living faith. It can no longer breathe. It can no longer receive or be responsive. It can't change. Change happens on the mountain. And that's precisely where Elijah is headed. Following what he thought would surely be a huge win for God, a righteous and religious triumph over the prophets of Baal and Asherah, Elijah instead finds himself running for his life. He's forced to flee the length of Israel. Going even further into the wilderness, Elijah ultimately collapses under a tree, exhausted and depressed, where he asks God to kill him. Incidentally, the symbol for the goddess Asherah was a tree. The Canaanite religious tradition in which the Israelites commingled recognized Asherah as the bountiful, sustaining, nourishing mother and tree of life. 
In a somewhat ironic storytelling twist, after murdering the prophets of Asherah, Elijah collapses, asks to die, and is instead sustained and nourished back to health by a heavenly messenger all underneath a tree. And the illusions don't stop with Asherah. There are other dots we're meant to connect. Elijah's story is filled with details that point to another prophet, one who knew a thing or two about mountains and change. Moses. The storyteller clearly wants to bring Moses to mind. In fact, there are over a dozen parallels connecting the stories of Elijah and Moses. Moses kills an Egyptian and ends up on the run from Pharaoh. Elijah kills Jezebel's prophets and ends up on the run from the queen. Both Moses and Elijah had people worshiping other gods put to death. Moses flees to the wilderness and stops at a burning bush. Elijah flees to the wilderness and stops at a sustaining tree. Moses spent 40 days and nights on Mount Horeb. Elijah travels 40 days and nights to the same mountain. Both Moses and Elijah end up in a cave or cleft of that mountain. And both Moses and Elijah experience overpowering and forceful displays of nature, storms and wind, earthquakes and fire. Friends, these are not small historically recorded details. These are storytelling clues that are meant to jump off the page or jolt us awake. These clues are flashing lights telling us to pay attention and watch for the change. That change is in the storms and wind, the earthquakes and fire. Or it isn't. In the curated and conserved tradition of Moses, God was in the storms and earthquakes that rattled the earth and the fire that dwelled on the mountain. But here, now, on the same mountain, Elijah experiences the storm, the earthquake, and the fire, and the presence of God is in none of it. Three times the story declares that things have changed. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the fire. God is not in the storm. God is no longer present in these destructive forces. As theologian Walter Brueggemann states, the bombastic is no longer an adequate vehicle for God. The Canaanite god Baal, he was bombastic. Baal was the storm god, capable of creating great destruction and violence to The Baal worshipers that Elijah killed, God was in the destructive forces. Even Moses and the enslaved people delivered from Egypt believed God to be in the storm. To them, God was in the earthquake and the fire, but not here, not now, not for Elijah. Something is different now. Elijah finds God not in the storm, but in the sound of sheer silence, what is often poetically translated as the still, small voice. The belief that God dwells in the destructive force, a belief shared by the prophets of Baal and Elijah, 
a belief that caused Elijah to kill 850 people in his own bombastic display no longer fits. God is not there. The eternal one is in the silence. God is in the stillness, not the bombastic. And it's worth noting that when Elijah hears the still small voice, it doesn't thank him for his zealotry. The sound of sheer silence doesn't say, hey, good job killing all those prophets. It says, Elijah, what are you doing here? In fact, it says that twice. God repeats the question word for word, Elijah, what are you doing here? That repetition can be interpreted as an allusion to the reality that Elijah is stuck in a loop, retreading a mountain that Moses has already climbed. It's as if God is saying to Elijah, we've already done this. We've been here before. Why are we climbing the same mountain again? And just as God repeats the question, Elijah twice repeats his answer word for word, complaining that he's the only one keeping the faith while everyone else fails to measure up. God's response to his complaint, however, tells a different story than the one Elijah's been telling himself. God tells Elijah, you're not the only one keeping the faith. There are 7,000 others, which is a number symbolic of abundance. Elijah, you're not alone, and you never have been. The only subsequent instruction Elijah receives is to go anoint successors for himself and the kings of Israel and Aram. Friends, I think we are supposed to see ourselves as Elijah in this story and not as Elijah, the triumphant hero who defends the faith and is rewarded, but as the Elijah who got stuck. I think we're supposed to see ourselves as the Elijah who became so dedicated to a static and stored faith that he brought drought-stricken people death instead of water. I think we're supposed to see ourselves as the Elijah whose well-intentioned efforts to protect his faith left him exhausted and depressed in the wilderness with the terrible idea that he was alone. I think we're supposed to see ourselves as the Elijah whose crushing certainty would rather ask to die than consider the possibility of change. We may be content with maintaining our museums, but the God of Elijah is not. If the museum won't come to the mountain, then the mountain's going to come to the museum. Change is inevitable. It's a part of it. A few weeks ago, my daughter had some of her artwork featured at the McNay Art Museum. After visiting her exhibit, we found and were fascinated by a 3D tree-like sculpture in the main exhibit hall. I'd never seen anything like it. 
And as I leaned in to examine it more closely, an extremely polite and well-intentioned docent appeared as if out of nowhere and asked me to step back and measure an appropriate amount of space in order to protect the art. I quickly stepped back and apologized. That's what museums do. Measure an appropriate amount of space and protect. And as museum patrons, we respect that. We don't touch the pieces. We don't breathe on them. We don't get too close, which makes sense because everything in a museum is dead or in a state of decay. To be sure, museums house and protect beautiful things, art that can inspire and relics that can educate, but staving off and slowing decay is what museums do. And that's not where faith belongs, at least not a living faith. A living faith is necessarily dynamic. A living faith breathes. A living faith rejoices and cries. It tries and fails. It collapses in the wilderness and rises again. A living faith climbs the mountain, sometimes clumsily and sometimes with contradiction. A living faith may even have to climb the same mountain twice, but it climbs nonetheless. If our faith is to move forward, if it is to be a living faith, then it cannot be under glass. It must breathe. It must be able to receive and respond. Drought-stricken people need water, and they're not going to get it in a museum full of fossilized forms. The Gospels tell a story of Jesus climbing a mountain, one on which he is joined by Moses and Elijah. The mountain of Moses invites us to trust in a God who desires to move us away from slavery and toward freedom. The mountain of Elijah reminds us to be open to change by a God who cannot be contained in a doctrine or a discipline. The mountain of the Christ calls us to absorb pain and suffering and death and replace them with love and light and mercy. None of that happens in a museum. It happens on the mountain. Our institutions must evolve. Our traditions must transform. In the name of Moses, Elijah, Jesus the Christ, and every climber of mountains that has followed, our church must change.